Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is September 18th, 2014, and my guest is David Otter of MIT. He's the author of a recent paper, Polanyi's Paradox and the Shape of Employment Growth, which is our topic for today's episode. David, welcome back to EconTalk. Uh, thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. I want to start by saying this is an extremely interesting and provocative paper packed with ideas and analysis, but still accessible for the uh, most part to a non-specialist. We'll put a link up to it, and I encourage listeners to check it out after after listening to the conversation. I also want to say that this is one of many episodes of Econ Talk where we look at the threat and opportunity posed by the increasing role of smart machines and computers in our economy. And I want to let people know that more are coming, uh, so enjoy. David, let's start with Polanyi's paradox. What is that, and uh, why is it relevant? Well, so uh, Polanyi is a Hungarian philosopher and scientist, and uh, he wrote a book, uh, I believe it was published in 1961, called The Tacit Dimension, in which he sort of uh, expressed or articulated the importance of of tacit knowledge in human behavior. Uh, The quotation I give in the paper is, uh, we know more than we can tell. And then he goes on to give the example of uh, the skill of a bicyclist or a, a, a automobile driver uh, cannot be simply articulated in words. Or, you know, more concretely, I could give you a day-long lecture on how to ride a bicycle. And at the end of the day, you wouldn't know how to ride a bicycle without having ridden one. And uh, the point that Polanyi was making is that there are many things that we tacitly understand how to do or are, uh, are capable of doing that we do not explicitly understand how to do and cannot articulate in terms of a procedure. Uh, so uh, riding a bicycle would be one example, but uh, there are many, many others. Uh, we don't know the procedure for coming up with a new hypothesis or for making a persuasive argument uh, or, for that matter, for uh, recognizing uh, you know, people from a distance or even recognizing someone uh, as they grow up that, how you, that you haven't seen in 15 years and they've changed greatly. How do you know that that's the same person? Or uh, how do you choose uh, the sort of locomotive path to navigate uh, along a, up a steep hill with a you know a rocky surface and catch your uh, you know catch your uh, falls in real time? These are all actually things that we sort of do as onboard equipment. Uh, or another great example would be in, interpreting the the nuances of spoken language more than just the uh, the words individually. Um, these are all things that we know how to do that are sort of built in. They're kind of part of our hardware, uh, but we don't know how to accomplish them uh, explicitly. We don't know how to write procedures or describe uh, the rules for doing those tasks. And so the point of this paper is uh, that makes them an extreme challenge for uh, computerization, for automation, that automation primarily works on taking the explicit procedure that we already do and uh, codifying those steps so that a machine can do it in our place. So when we have a, you know, a computer program that you know, does calculations or sorts through files or searches through words uh, or uh, you know, uh, you know, helps us lay out a circuit board, uh, if, we were to, if we were a CAD uh, user, it's following a set of codified explicit procedures that we already understood uh, and now we have uh, laid out those steps. But uh, hard to do that if we don't actually know the procedure for uh, the thing that we're accomplishing. 
Yeah, one of the things, I think I've probably told the story before, but one of the most beautiful and inspiring and moving uh, videos I've ever seen is is one that looks at Andrew Weil's attempt and finally successful attempt to solve Fermat's last theorem. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had had this proof of the theorem that was knocked down. But for a while, he was celebrated as the one of the greatest mathematicians of all time. He was pretty uh, – he must have been exhilarated for a while. And then it turned out the proof's not right. And then he spent a rather horrible set of, of time, as you might expect, trying to resurrect that proof. And um, he couldn't. And to hear him talk about it, he says, um, and then one day, <laughs> one day I you know, looked up or I put my head down and I looked up and he saw how to solve it again. And he can't explain what happened there. He has no idea of that uh, intuition, that aha, that eureka moment. And uh, to me, it's one of the most beautiful, mysterious parts of the human enterprise is that, of course, computer scientists wonder and philosophers wonder whether the, that's just a matter of time before we understand that process. You want to weigh in on that? I Yes, absolutely. So first, that's a great example you just gave. And let me emphasize that, that this, you know, this paradox and the paradox being that we do things that we don't know how that we don't know how to do uh, is, you know, applies as much to the mundane as to the sublime, right? It applies so as much to, you know, uh, you know, proving a, you know, an incredible, you know, a century old mathematical uh, challenge. That's one example, but something as simple as, uh, you know, uh, walking up a flight of stairs or uh, looking at a, you know, a garbled piece of text and figuring out what it says, which is, of course, what you do with these captchas all the time. Or, uh, em- or empathy. Uh, when someone comes or, into a room sure. who's had a bad day and you recognize they need a little affection or kindness or right. or That's a right. cold drink. <laughs> That's right. So uh, both of these things are, you know, require, you know, draw on a set of capabilities that we possess, uh, but they're not in the kind of, uh, not, not, not in the kind of uh, accessible, uh, analytical, procedural set of steps that we would use to uh, explain to, uh, you know, have a machine do the same thing. In terms of our ability to get those things or to, to automate those things, I mean, clearly, uh, we, you know, we've made progress on automating many things uh, and that initially seemed extremely challenging. So you know, people actually initially thought like teaching how a computer play chess would be uh, just an extremely hard problem because we know that chess masters are geniuses, et cetera. Uh, and uh, as it turned out, actually, that problem was solved relatively quickly. And now, you know, any uh, inexpensive chess-playing computer piece of software can, you know, pretty much beat the world's best chess players. And uh, you know, this actually, and in fact, this observation that many things that initially appeared hard appear turn out to be simple, and things that appear simple turn out to be hard has a name. It's called Moravec's paradox. Uh, and you know, many things that can, you know. Artificial intelligence thought it would be easy to have, you know, sort of robotic servants that would, you know, empty your dishwasher and, yeah, see, uh, you know, see sleeper, uh, but it, see sleeper by yeah, Woody exactly, Allen. exactly, that's right, exactly. Uh, and but it would be hard to get the computer to play chess. Actually, the opposite has turned out to be true. Uh, and there and there are two reasons or two, two uh, or let, let me put so some so there are two reasons why we've gotten good at some of these things and not others. One is that. Uh, it turns out that there's a uh, there's a well-known procedure that you could use, right? So you could you could algorithmatize how to play chess uh, and find you know the optimal solution for problems. So you could write that out as a set of equations. Now that's not true for chess. Actually, chess doesn't have a kind of closed form solution. There is no one dominant strategy in chess that anyone knows about. 
But instead, what computers do is they uh, they use a lot of processing power to basically iterate through you know multiple steps, uh, multiple levels of moves, and choose uh, after sort of calculating you know many thousands or hundreds of thousands of possible sequences of boards. They then choose what appears to be the best strategy given that kind of forward-looking search, and they may also do kind of some database lookup of prior games. Um, what computers do in playing chess is probably pretty different from what grandmasters do, uh, in the sense that they're uh, using the kind of uh, the the comparative advantage of computation in you know doing lots and lots of really quick calculations uh, and and storing the information accurately. Whereas a, ch- a chess grandmaster is probably much more likely to be using a kind of a mixture of intuition uh, and uh, recall of previous games, pattern recognition, pattern exactly, elegance. Um, so. Yeah. So the question is, will, you know, will we get better at all these other things the same way we've gotten better at chess? And I, I think the, the answer is uh, uh, probably in the long run. I don't, I don't think anyone uh, – very few people doubt that in the long run over you know, you know, 10 years or 20 years or more likely 30 or 40 or 50 years, many of these problems will, uh, will make substantial progress. Uh, it's more a question of A – uh, how how long how long it will take how hard the challenge is and b how we'll do it will we actually have machines that will do what we do or will uh, in terms of you know having intuition having or you know figuring out problems uh, in this kind of non procedural as far as we know uh, way or will they in fact will we re- recast the problems or recast the technologies such that they do it very differently from what we do and yet still successfully. So, talk, right? so for example – Yeah, talk about the yeah. driverless car because I thought that was a real – which we've talked about a number of times on the program. And that is sure. a really beautiful uh, uh, deromanticization of it in your, in your paper. <laughs> okay, good. So I, I, so I basically lay out uh, you know, two, two sort of central strategies for dealing with what, you know, what, what, we call, what I call in the paper non-routine problems, problems that, don't, that we don't know the explicit procedures. Uh, one of those strategies is what I call environmental control. Environmental control means simplifying the environment so that something that's far less flexible than a human being can manage in that environment. So, you know, uh, just a very, uh, like a, literally a concrete example <laughs> is that if you think about, you know, modern automobiles, <laughs> uh, you know, they are, you know, they're, they're reliable, they're fast, uh, they're safe, um, you know, they're extremely competent, and yet, actually, uh, they require smooth even surfaces with narrow, with shallow grades and turns that are not too tight, something that would never occur in nature. And so what do we do? Well, we change the environment to make it car compatible. So it's estimated that uh, an area the size of Ohio in the U.S. is covered by so-called impermeable services, most of which are roads. So that's why I said a concrete example. Uh, so environmental adaptation is, you know, applied in lots of areas, right? So we, you know, assembly lines basically make things very predictable and consistent. That's why there, it's easier to use robotics, robots in an assembly line where there's a very narrow scope of activity than in a, uh, an uncontrolled, you know, home or work environment. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the, uh, so I, I make the point in the paper that actually this environmental control is also applied very frequently to computerization problems that you basically make the environment predictable uh, in a way that allows machines to adapt to it. And the example I give is of the Google car is many people think of the Google car as being flexible like a human driver, smart. right? It goes it's smart. And it, it is smart uh, in a way, but it's not – if you were to put the Google car 
in a you know, just drop it down in the middle of a city it had never uh, it had not been prepared for and i'll explain in a second what prepared means it would have to stop it cannot in real time recognize a road figure out where the traffic lights are and the stop signs uh determine what the routing is uh determine what the speed limits are and so on uh it uh it, it would uh it, it's not that adaptable in real time instead the uh, Google engineers basically go through with their mapping software and then hand curate the maps on which the Google car will, uh, for the roads the Google car will navigate in a sense, identifying all the stop signs, all the traffic lights, all the routing and speed limits. So the Google car still has to be adaptive in the sense that it has to, you know, recognize objects in its way, other vehicles, pedestrians. Uh, it needs to tell whether a light is red or green, uh, et cetera. But it doesn't have to figure out the entire environment in real time. And in fact, if it encounters a substantial deviation from the environment it's anticipating, it needs to stop. So if there's a signal man in the road, uh, so it's changing the traffic routing, at that point, the, the Google car has to cede control to the human driver. It's not that adaptive. So what I say in the paper, some would say is a little unfair, uh, although the Google car appears as flexible as a human being, uh, in some sense, it's it's more like a train driving kind of on invisible tracks. Uh, now that's a little that's that's a little bit of an overstatement because, of course, a train doesn't you know doesn't recognize pedestrians and cars and come to a stop, uh, uh, and a train can't swerve out of the way. <laughs> uh, but nevertheless, the Google car is the tracks and sometimes are laid out for it, and then it needs to only react to, to deviations from, uh, from, you know, from the tracks it hopes to be driving on, uh, obstacles in this way. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating example. I guess the question is, as our knowledge advances of the brain, yep. are there going to be limits? Now, most uh, – Robin Hansen on this program long, long time ago basically said, you know – and a lot of people agree with him. It's just chemistry. It's just a matter of time before we figure it out. And that may be 10. It might be 20, as you said. might be 50 years. The, the real question is, is it going to be possible to ever understand what that grandmaster is doing, what Andrew Wiles is doing through a chemical analysis of what's going on in the brain? Or it, it, we, I don't know. That's an unanswerable question. But yeah, I, 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 th think, I think it's an unanswerable. I don't think the answer will be through a chemical analysis. I mean, in the sense that you know, even if you thought, if you said, I'm going to, I'm going to understand what a computer does through an analysis of silicon, <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, right? That wouldn't actually be informative because it's actually about information. It's about uh, symbolic processing, right? So the, 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 the physical structure is actually somewhat divorced from the kind of meta, uh, you know, information processing structure. So that doesn't mean the brain can't be understood. I just don't think that, you know, a chemistry set's going to do it. <laughs> uh, it's really understanding. It, uh, yeah. I think that's exactly right, and I I, uh, I think what's fascinating about all these examples, and we're, we're going to get into this a little bit more, and then we're going to turn to actually to data rather than, than speculation, which is uh, probably a good idea. But uh, you know what's fascinating to me is is going back to a recent econ talk episode with Paul Fleiderer, where he talked about the uh, tendency of economists to 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 employ the Milton Friedman as if hypothesis. So we don't know what managers really do or we don't we don't pay attention actually to what they really do we posit sure. something and then we say it's as if they do it this way and right. i think we do we're doing this with this machine with this uh, smart machine stuff we're saying well we don't know what a what a grandmaster does uh playing chess but i'm going to act as if it's what the computer's doing when it sifts through thousands and thousands of of different opportunities but that's not what the grandmaster is doing. It, that may be somewhat predictive of what a grandmaster might do most of the time, 
It's not the same thing. And you can't then go the other way and say, so we could just develop a, a computer then. If we, since we can develop a computer that acts as if it's a grandmaster, then we can develop a computer that is a grandmaster. And they're not the same thing. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a big debate, you know, there's been, you know, many decades of, of, uh, setbacks and, and some successes in artificial intelligence. And there's a lot of debate among our artificial intelligence researchers about how you should go about trying to, you know, master human activities with machinery. So one school of thought is that we need to learn from biology itself, right? That basically, you know, like if you look at the, you know, the, the way the, you know, hu- the human brain recognizes objects, sort of visual recognition starts about two cells back in the eye, right? It's not, it's not like it, it's just a data, it's just a, you know, a data receptacle and then it goes to a, a piece of, you know, to a central processor. There's a, there's a whole, you know, mechanism that's sort of, you know, built in for pattern recognition that is sort of fundamental to the, uh, you know, the hardware itself. And so some people say we have to learn from the example of how biology does it. Others would say, uh, no, no, actually, all we need to do is we have to have sort of conceptual models of the world. Uh, and then the machinery, you know, based on those conceptual models can, you know, process, uh, process the information it receives and figure out what's what. It doesn't have to look, doesn't have to work, you know, an airplane doesn't have to flap its wings to fly. Uh, and then there's a third school of thought, or, and then, you know, there's many variants in between that says, we don't need to do any of that stuff. Uh, we just need machines to learn to behave like us by, uh, basically learning from the world, right? So the, the idea of machine learning is a that. kind of, yeah, so machine learning is the idea. Is, uh, so Polanyi's paradox is, uh, you know, we know what you know, we know what we can tell. We do things, but we don't know how we do them, so we can't explain them. So one idea, so this gives rise to the idea of machine learning. Well, instead of trying to write down the procedure that we don't understand for do, doing something, why don't we have the machine, a machine that looks at examples, you know, correct and incorrect answers, and then infers uh, what is the procedure or the set of statistical uh, connections that, that makes that the right answer. So this is, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a iconic or at least a highly discussed example was the, the Google cat recognition software uh, hardware thing uh, came from Google X Labs and it used 16,000 processors uh, to parse through a database of millions of pictures of things that were cats and were not cats. Uh, and without any specific model, uh, except being told this has a picture of a cat, this doesn't, and it circles the cat, uh, it then tried to, inf- it would then attempt to look at new pictures that where the cat was not circled and say, which of these photographs or drawings contains a cat? And uh, there, you know, it was, uh, uh, if you look at the pictures at w- which it recognized, which are actually uh, one example to include in my paper, uh, there, you know, it's pretty good. It mostly, uh, you know, it, it recognized a bunch of cats. One thing it predicted, it, it, viewed as being very likely to be a cat turns out to be a pair of coffee cups uh, next to one another. And they don't and, need, and uh, coffee cups don't need a litter box, but okay. That's right. Uh, and, um, but, you know, so what is it doing? Well, it's basically, it, 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 without any, it has no model in mind of the world, right? It doesn't say, you know, a cat is a, you know, is a, you know, is a feline, is a, you know, um, is a, is a biological organism with four legs and et cetera. It just says, well, here's pictures of things that you told me are a cat and I'm going to look at their statistical properties and then try to predict or infer uh, from uh, in other pictures what else might be a cat that fits that description in some sense. The description you haven't given me but only just shown me examples. So that's a kind of what, what someone would call a kind of a scorched earth or brute force approach to Big learning. Data. Big data. 
and it's a big data approach, and and it also uh, has strengths and limitations. Strength, of course, is it, it's uh, it requires only processing power. It doesn't necessarily require a huge amount of uh, kind of you know analytical infrastructure to you know build a model of uh, to teach about thinking about a cat. Um, its disadvantage uh, is uh, that it 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 may not it may be fairly brittle and not very general in the sense that without reasoning about what the uh, what the, the object is or the thing you're trying to recognize, you could get things that uh, uh, would be statistically likely and yet clearly incorrect. <laughs> uh, so like the coffee cups. Um, and uh, that no human, no four-year-old kid would make that error, would look at that picture and say, uh, even a kid with 16,000 processors <laughs> would look at that picture and say, oh, those, uh, those coffee cups are cats. They would see the difference. But Perhaps the reason they would see the difference is because their reasoning about what it makes a cat is much more sophisticated than the simple, you know, statistical features, right? They would say, well, they, uh, someone that understood a cat was an animal would say, well, it has to be, you know, it has to be an organic creature. What is, well, what would be consumed being organic? Well, it wouldn't have a smooth ceramic surface, right? <laughs> uh, but of course, that's, you know, that's a step that's many, many more steps down the line of reasoning than simple visual recognition, right? It requires an, some knowledge of what the, the object is in the world, which is a, a much harder problem. So, you know, I, I give the example in the paper of, in fact, I was quoting from a paper in the computer science community called What is a Chair? And it talks about, you know, the difficulty of teaching a machine to recognize a chair because there are Chairs come in a huge variety of uh, sizes, and it's uh, not just size, excuse me, features. And, you know, for example, does it have to have a back to have a chair? Well, no, of course not. We know there are backless chairs. But then how do you distinguish a chair from a table? Uh, well, you know, you'd have to sort of look at the dimensions and sort of think about, does it look more table-like or chair-like? What does that mean? And then, you know, the example given in this paper that I quote in my uh, article is, uh, if you looked at kind of a traffic cone and a toilet seat, you could say, well, they both look somewhat chair-like. Uh, you know, they have a base, they have a, a surface Heights. at the top. Heights about right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, however, if you reasoned about the human anatomy, you might think to yourself, well, a traffic cone wouldn't be that comfortable to sit on. Yeah. So probably that's not a chair. But that requires reasoning about what the object is for, not simply, uh, you know, what physical features has in a kind of uh, in a very basic sense. And so that's a harder problem. So there's a divide in the computer science community. I'm not, not a not, not a civil war, but a divide about can we just do this by brute force, i.e., you know, pattern recognition uh, or does that in some sense what what some what I heard someone say, uh, one of my MIT colleagues is, well, it gets it right on average and misses all the important cases. <laughs> uh, so I you know, so I think there's uh, there's a great deal of uncertainty about what routes will prove, prove most productive. I think all of them will to some degree. Uh, so it's really, it's more a question, I think that you know, a lot of debate is how fast things will progress. Uh, how quick will this move? Will these challenges be quickly surmounted as some, you know, uh, some people optimistically believe? Are we still decades away from having you know, uh, domestic robots like Woody Allen Sleeper? Yeah, so let's, let's move into the less speculative part uh, of this issue, which is regardless of where we're going to end up, which is an interesting question to discuss, and that's what really we've been discussing in this opening. Regardless of where we end up, it's clear that computers have done a lot of substituting for some human tasks because they, the computers mm -hmm. do it well and do it cheaply. And this has people worried that maybe 
even if all the jobs aren't going to be eliminated, many or most of them will. We have computers diagnosing cancer, replacing potentially high-paid doctors. We have computers doing all kinds of things they couldn't do five years ago, 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago. So let's let's look at this, at the impact of this so far. And, and you point out in the paper, of course, this is a very old worry uh, that, sure. that this is going to, that technology is going to replace uh, human employment. Uh, I just want to say that it, I find it fascinating that the world kind of right now divides among pundits and even some economists into, well, people have always worried about it before, but They've always been wrong. <laughs> uh, technology has right. been good for human beings. It's created other kinds of jobs at the same time. And the second view that says this time's different because this is going to get rid of all the jobs or almost all the jobs. So tell us what we know about what's actually happened because there's some very interesting patterns. And you're the only person I know of who's actually looked at what's going on and, and at, a, at a more micro granular level. Well, let me say there are many people who have worked on this at this point, but the so let me sort of uh, make three points. One, there is a long history of, of uh, you know, concern about uh, the impact of automation on employment. And, the, you know, the most famous example that people give is the, sort of the Luddites who were uh, 19th century weavers who rose up against the power, power frame, the power frame loom, uh, because they were afraid that it would reduce employment and earnings. And they very well may have been right for themselves because, of course, it did take uh, scarce artisanal skills and basically s- substitute them with – uh, basically machines and children <laughs> uh, doing those jobs. In the long run, of course, it didn't reduce employment, but it had probably had significant distributional consequences. But more recently, I don't think most people are aware of this, uh, this concern again rose in the 19, early 1960s under the Johnson administration, and there was a commission set up to investigate the productivity problem, and the productivity problem was the productivity was growing too fast, <laughs> and the concern was that would mean there wouldn't be enough jobs. Uh, and in fact, the U.S. Department of the Interior was in on this about talking about the potential leisure crisis, the crisis being there'd be too much leisure. The Department of Interior, I think the, their, their stake in this is they ran the national parks, and so they would have to deal with all these leisure seekers. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, the concern – so the, I think the, those concerns, obviously, we had you know a bunch of good decades, and we didn't feel that we had any uh, leisure crisis. Uh, and, uh, but the concern has re-arisen. So if you look at the Chicago boost poll of economists, of, you know, they, if you, uh, you know, the vast majority say in the long run, technology, there's no evidence that technology has reduced employment. Uh, uh, but then if you ask about sort of stagnating wages over the last decade and the role of information technology, a kind of a plurality of economists think that there might be a direct connection there. Um, so my uh, my work with uh, many co-authors, including Frank Levy and Richard Murnane uh, and uh, Larry Katz and David Dorn and Gordon Hansen uh, and Daron Asimoglu, I could go on the, the list of notables, but uh, people who've uh, been extremely uh, uh, valuable as, uh, and insightful as co-authors, the um, – we, we have sort of pointed out the role that computerization has played in changing the occupational structure, uh, in particular in displacing routine codifiable tasks, going back to the beginning of our discussion, which would mainly mean jobs in uh, clerical, administrative support, some degree sales, and also many production and operative positions, all of which uh, are skilled work that uh, use a lot of codifiable procedural activities. Uh, and those things, even though they are educated tasks, increasingly are relatively automatable. And the one consequence of this is that you sort of see this, what someone would call a polarization of employment, that 
on the one hand, we don't have computers substituting for people who are doing professional technical and managerial tasks, you know, things that require uh, intuition, creativity, expertise, uh, and a kind of a mixture of fluid intelligence with technical knowledge. So, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a scientist, I have lots of technical knowledge, but I also need this kind of fluid intelligence for uh, developing hypotheses. Uh, if I'm the same, if I'm in sales and marketing, if I'm an attorney, uh, if I'm a medical doctor. Um, so on the one hand, creating, you know, uh, an increasing role for these very highly educated skilled jobs that are not only not directly substituted, but to a substantial to an important degree complemented by information technology, because information and processing is kind of input into these occupations. On the other hand, it also leads to a relative growth in many in-person service jobs, like uh, food service, cleaning, landscaping, uh, personal care, uh, home health aid, security guards. And these, are, these require tasks that have proved very difficult to automate, as per Paul Polanyi's paradox. Uh, but the irony is that the supply of workers who can do them is quite abundant, right? So although it's hard to, to you know, develop a domestic uh, or a you know, restaurant-serving robot, uh, it's not hard for a person with their full physical faculties to have that job and do it productively, uh, with very little training, you know, many people can be production in the course of a couple of days. So we have a simultaneous growth of of high education, high wage jobs, relatively low education, low wage jobs, and those jobs are low wage for a reason, and the reason being that the supply of workers who can do them is potentially potentially extremely elastic. So it's hard for wages to rise in those activities unless essentially there are better opportunities elsewhere in the economy that you have to bribe people not to take. Uh, that's the sort of canonical explanation, you know, why do barbers' wages rise over time even though barbers don't get any faster cutting hair? Well, the answer is because they need to be compensated for not doing something else uh, in which that, uh, where that would, you know, have rising productivity. So people have to be willing to pay more and more over time for those type of jobs. So uh, we talk about this polarization phenomenon, uh, and this has been documented across uh, not only in the U.S., but uh, at least 16 European EU economies uh, in the work, recent work by uh, Alan Manning, Martin Goose, and Anna Solomons. And uh, it appears to be uh, a pretty broad, widespread phenomenon, this decline of many of these middle-skill uh, uh, office and uh, production jobs and relative growth of both high-wage, high-skill, and low-wage, low-skill jobs. So it raises a bit of a specter. Um and Tyler Cowen's book, Average is Over, and the episode we yep. did with Tyler on it, uh, it, right. it creates this vision of the future uh, if these trends continue, which seems a bit ominous. Uh, a lot of successful, highly paid, skilled people, and, and a, a, but a much larger group of mm -hmm. unskilled and poorly paid people. Uh, talk about the weight. We, we've been talking about the employment data so far, though. Talk about what we've learned from the wage data. Well, so the wage data are it's it's a great deal more complicated because there you know though the, uh, the there there are several mechanisms by which that changes in those changes in task demands translate into changes in wages. So uh, I, the three of them that I outline in the paper one is sort of you know are you directly substituted or are you more likely to be complemented right? So you know if you're a person who's an accountant who can only add subtract and you're a bookkeeper clearly you know, automation devalues your skills. You can just do that more cheaply with a machine. On the other hand, if you're an accountant who, uh, you know, uh, understands the, you know, sort of conceptual uh, basis of the business and spots problems and uh, creates, you know, uh, valuable, uh, you know, kind of record-keeping ideas or ways of organizing information to uh, augment operation, then you're complemented 
uh, by computerization because, of course, you can accomplish more of the thing you're good at uh, with uh, in in the same amount of time because you have all this hardware to help you do it, right? So, uh, in general, and I think this is vastly uh, underappreciated in discussions of automation, that automation generally complements us by substituting for the things that are time intensive and allowing us to focus on the things in which we have value added. Right. Yeah, this this goes uh, back, by the way, to Adam Smith, and um, when he talks about the division of labor being limited by the extent of the market, and he talks about the application and technology making people more productive, and um, it's very important. It's a long is a long history. That's right, and but he, I think Adam, you know, Adam Smith was most, mostly focused on the division of labor as a sort of a way of of increasing productivity. I don't think he really fully appreciated this or the role of capital augmenting labor. Right, I think in the he way did that, actually. You know, I think he oh. did. Well, we'll I'll, I'll send you an okay. excerpt. We'll put it up. He, okay. He talks about the kid doing some mundane task, thinking about a way to to uh, to uh, mechanize it, and thereby uh, not have to not have to work as hard and making the thing more productive. It was primitive. He didn't. He wasn't thinking about it. <laughs> right, uh, right, right. Okay. Uh, so I, I stand corrected. <laughs> that's that's totally fine. It's surprising. So, uh, anyway, so that but the point. So I think you know it's easy to see the many ways in which machines substitute for the things that we used to do. And then what's harder to see typically is how is that complementing us? But of course, if you sit back and say, well, you know, could you and I be having this conversation? Could you actually, you know, have a pro- podcast? Could I actually do statistical research as an economist without all this sort of hardware uh, increasing my output per hour? I think the answer is not, not very well. So on the one hand is that, you know, are you directly complemented versus substituted? A second factor that affects how that automation affects your, you know, the earnings in, in, the, in a given activity is sort of the elasticity of final demand. So in other words, if we get really productive at something, but there's a fixed amount of it that people want, then eventually, uh, you know, they just buy less and less of it. So you see, uh, for example, in agriculture, uh, you know, the vast increases in productivity in agriculture stemming from the Green Revolution and so on uh, have eventually reduced employment dramatically in agriculture. And the reason is that uh, there's just, we, you know, all evidence to the contrary, yeah. <laughs> there seems to be a finite amount that we can eat. That's a great example. So food's, uh, food's incredibly cheap, which is a glorious thing, right. but it doesn't right. lead to therefore by, oh, there'll be more farmers. They're fewer. That's right. That's correct. And in other places, that's not the case. So in medicine, for example, you know, we get, we are much, much more productive at medicine than we were 50 years ago or a hundred years ago where we mostly, you know, harmed people. <laughs> now we do lots and lots of useful procedures and demand, it seems to be extremely elastic, right? So we spend more and more of our money on medical care because it's, it becomes more and more valuable. It becomes more productive. Well, we've subsidized um, it also. So it's a little complicated. So, oh, well, right. right. There's, there are many factors, but, uh, uh, okay, but we so, do want uh, it. We do want it, right? That's right. And then the the uh, so this again, you know, many of the professions, right? You think they, you know, people seem to demand more of them as they get better, uh, you know, medical care or a lot of professional outputs. And then the the third uh, factor that I think is extremely important is kind of the elasticity of labor supply. Right. So if there's a, an increase in demand for medical doctors, or they become more productive, so people are more willing to go to the doctor. Uh, you can't, you can't, I can't just read about it in the newspaper and say, oh, great, all this demand for doctors. I think I'll start being a doctor tomorrow, right? Because it takes years and years uh, to become one. And so and productivity not- increases in those occupations generally will translate into wage gains because you won't have very rapid numerical increases uh, in supply. But now, it's not, let's just, take this- it's not just the yep. time, it's the fact that not everybody is capable of doing it, which is, I think, also very important, which means that sure. those wage. That's right. Those wages will right. persist. So you, could, 
you could argue the supply is even more less elastic because it's not just right sure how long you'd have to go to school, but who's who's suitable for that work. Now let's take these three uh, exam, you know, those three points and bring them over to the left side of the or the the low uh, education side of the labor market and say, okay, well we have uh, you know automation. How is this affecting employment in you know housekeeping? Right? You say, well. Gosh, there isn't really a lot that much substitution of machinery for housekeepers, but there isn't much complementarity either, right? You could imagine that you know information technology would somehow make you know increase the productivity, the amount of house cleaning someone could do per hour, but it's hard to see where that that actually happens, right? Well, the so, vacuum cleaner's already invented, so that's that was good. Yeah, that's right. And the vacuum that was complementary right. so, to people. But that was complementary, absolutely. But it's that's but it's not. Over. We don't see a lot. Of, exactly. The second point, you say, okay, well, what about the elasticity of demand? Well, it turns out that actually uh, those uh, there's there's not a lot of evidence that those uh, those personal services are very price elastic, but they are elastic to overall societal wealth. So when income goes up, people spend more on those types of things. Excuse me. So economic growth can certainly be beneficial for those activities. But now let's imagine, let's take the best case scenario. Okay, so we have. Uh, you know, there's some productivity increase, and then there's economic growth, so demand for these personal services rises. Well, what happens? Well, the supply of labor to those activities is potentially very elastic because there's almost no barrier to entry. Uh, people can do them and be productive uh, really rapidly, and they don't need specialized skills or training. So that means that uh, it's hard for wages to rise in those activities quickly because uh, labor supply will tend to dampen that rapidly, especially when people are being kind of displaced from middle-skilled jobs. So we have seen growth in personal services, but only in the 90s when labor markets were extremely tight. And otherwise, even though employment growth has been rather polarized with growth at the top and growth at the bottom, wage growth in the 2000s and in the 1980s was not polarized. It was rising more at the top and falling more at the bottom. So... Uh, so what the point that the, I make in the paper is we, it's easy to understand how these uh, technological changes affect the sort of shape of employment growth, what activities in, uh, are demanding more and less labor. The actual implications for who earns what are mediated through these other general equilibrium forces uh, that uh, you know tend to benefit the high-skilled uh, and don't seem to be nearly as beneficial for low-skilled workers or low-skilled occupations. Uh, low education occupations, low education workers, even as numerical employment in those activities rises. So that's kind of what we'd expect. I mean, I, right? And the idea would be, um, you know, we go back to earlier times of technological change. When the car comes along, blacksmiths don't make so much money anymore, like zero, uh, all of a sudden, and they have to turn to something else. And for many of them, it's late in life, it's hard to tool up. What we'd hope would happen. In the current scenario, and we've seen a little of it, is that as the high-end jobs, the jobs that require uh, more education, are paying a lot more, that would draw people into high-end skill acquisition. It's been somewhat surprising, though, as you point out in the paper, that there hasn't been more of that. And I want to add two things to that and let you react. One is there's a sort of um, – it's all well and good to say we need more STEM-trained people – Right. Science, technology, engineering, and math, but maybe people have limits in how much STEM they can, how many people can do STEM stuff, and so th this problem is just perhaps going to quote get worse. Uh, it's not obvious that, and, and then the people who do go on to college don't always study those things either because they can or they don't like them or they're not they're not thinking about it enough or don't want to think about it. Maybe they shouldn't, but 
it seems to me that the this application. So I'm, I'm trying to summarize what you're saying here, and then I'll let you react. Mm-hmm. No, that, no, that, I that it. At the high end, uh, we have a pretty healthy situation, and we see that high end yeah. skills situation. We see that the unemployment rate's very low, the wage growth is yeah. healthier. It, the the bottom seventy five percent, or whatever the number is, maybe twenty five percent, but somewhere in that twenty five to seventy five percent range, not it's not going so well, and it's not obvious that that's going to change through natural responses. That's that's I think is the worry. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the uh, it is that the, the the supply response to the rising return to education in the United States over the last thirty five years really started rising in nineteen eighty, and it's basically risen almost continuously to the present. It hasn't grown as much in the last uh, five or eight years, but uh, it's plateaued an extremely high level. <laughs> um, the re- supply response has been su- surprisingly slow and weak. Uh, it's been much, much stronger among women than among men. Uh, and, you know, women vastly outnumber men uh, in college education at this point and also uh, are outnumbering them in, in uh, the professions. Um, and this has been a big puzzle. Uh, I don't think anyone knows completely the answer for why that is true. We did actually see an, in, in the 2000s, we did see an increase in high school completion rates, so the first time we've seen that in decades, uh, and an increase in college attainment. So there is, you know, it's not that the message isn't getting through, but it's getting through very, very slowly. Now, I think part of the reason, this goes back to your question of, uh, you know, why aren't more people doing STEM? It's now pretty clearly documented that you know your college major matters a huge amount uh, for your subsequent earnings, and STEM workers do earn more, uh, and uh, sociology and you know clinical psychology majors earn a lot less, uh, and uh, and that information is known. Why is why aren't people switching? And I think one reason, I and mean, part of it is just taste. You know, people just some people just really don't like doing those things. Part of it also is poor preparation. Uh, you know, the U.S. has a very weak uh, you know uh, STEM education in secondary in the high school at the high school level uh and even you know in the middle school level and so we're way behind other countries and so it, that makes it much much harder for people to enter those activities i mean you know even when we teach you know we have phd students in economics uh yeah, i mean so i spend a lot of time teaching my phd students in economics at mit but the people who go into the fields of theory uh, you know, which are extremely mathematically intensive. They're basically many, most of them are from other countries and they have uh, very deep math backgrounds, you know, by the time they're through high school and there are very few U.S. students. So if we get a liberal arts student who enters MIT's economics program, it's very unlikely that they're going to become an economic theorist. Now, I'm not saying that's a great loss to the world or to them, but it's already that, that, that road is already blocked to them because they didn't have the foundational preparation when they were younger. Uh, so they'll do they'll do other things in economics, you know, very useful things. <laughs> I'm not a theorist. Uh, I'm I'm not sad about that. But my point simply being that it, that the foundational skills in STEM, particularly the mathematics and analytical training, uh, need to come pretty early. So I think many uh, uh, U.S. students uh, are are not prepared to enter the fields that, in fact, would be more remunerative as a result of uh, shortcomings in our. Uh, primary and secondary educational system. Yeah, we've talked a lot about that recently, and we'll continue to talk about it. Um, that that's another issue, obviously. Yeah. So, but is it correct to say? Uh, I want to make sure people understand the underlying economics here. Uh, at at the at the, is it correct to summarize what you've been saying as follows? At the upper ends of the skill distribution, technology complements. That means enhances. Yeah. Uh, one's productivity at the lower end, not so much. 
so that to some extent the the wage effect is not going to be to be as large and is therefore the middle uh being reduced dramatically the employment opportunities in the so-called middle in the wage and in the wage distribution right. is the well, wage distribution so, polarized is it bimodal well, it, it, in any way it's, it's not no it's not as bimodal because wage growth has been so weak at the bottom so that was the point i was making earlier that the sort of the declines in the middle sort of cascade downward <laughs> Uh, because people who are in these middle skill activities can easily move into personal services, right? So if they're displaced, they're going to put pressure on wages in lower wage activities as well. So even though the employment is fairly polarized, wages were polarized in the in the 1990s, but otherwise, pretty much, it's been uh, you know looked more like a uh, downward escalator. Um, the but I guess so. A couple points on this that I, that I want to emphasize. First of all, I I think that one should not assume that polarization, uh, even of employment, will go on forever. Uh, that sort of the middle will just collapse to zero. I think that that's you know it's it's always dangerous to just take the current trend and just forecast it. You extrapolate linearly uh, to the vanishing point. That's not likely to happen. A lot of the possibilities for that substitution may already have occurred. And when you look at what's left, quote, in the middle, actually the jobs become more skilled again. So we have many fewer typists and, you know, filing clerks than we used to, but the people who are clerical workers have more skilled jobs than they used to, right? They are people who organize travel and work out logistics, right, and deal with hard problems like, you know, how to get reimbursed. <laughs> um, the uh, And uh, similar, you know, you can also like a, a nice place to look is in the medical world. So there are lots of medical technician jobs that many, some of which don't require a college degree, but they virtuously combine a set of technical skills with these sort of fluid intelligence skills. So being a nurse, being a X-ray tech, uh, you know, being a phlebotomist, and uh, and those things you know pay pretty well and arguably will be growing. I think it was partly because of uh, aging of population. So I, I think there will be, there certainly are going to be uh, highly paid, uh, good career jobs in medical, uh, in medical technical jobs, in the skilled trades, like for example, construction or electricity or plumbing, uh, in skilled repair. And in some sense, what, what we have in the sort of maniacal focus on college for all we've sort of forgotten that there's a whole set of skilled vocations that, again, I think are complemented in the sense that they combine expertise uh, and technical knowledge uh, with uh, these very difficult to substitute uh, human capacities, right? That the, the complementarity is there. So, um, let, yep. so let, let me bring us back to our earlier discussion. Yeah. Uh, I can easily imagine a world where uh, a robot – and I know people are literally working on this now, a robot would give me my, uh, I'm in the hospital, God forbid, and, and yeah. I need, mm -hmm. and post-op, first of all, the operation, clearly technology right now is incredibly complementary, has incredible complementarity with surgeons, surgeons using robotic devices. But we could imagine a world where I don't even have a surgeon, the robot takes out my kidney or whatever it is. It's imaginable, mm -hmm. but this is much more imaginable. And the post-op, an arm, a robot arm gives me my uh, dispenses the right amount of um, of pill for me that I need. Uh, maybe not just dispenses the right kind of pill, but knows my history and does some diagnosis of me and knows I need a different dose than the person one bed over. Um, mm -hmm. It's you know does a whole bunch of things for me that a human being can do. What it can't do 
at least right now, is make me feel better uh, and mm-hmm. show empathy. And um, uh, that that ability, it, it remains a human, I think will remain a human uh, thing. But that skill is, you know, the question is that those, those high-paying nursing jobs, they might be gone in 20 years, most of them. Sure. If those, so if those things are, are, uh, are not complementary, then if we just have people who are paid em- empaths <laughs> who have no medical knowledge and don't need any, I, those aren't going to be highly paid jobs, right? They need to be – there has to be a, a skill that they possess that is genuinely scarce, right? Well, I don't know about uh, that. They, Being empathetic is pretty scarce. Uh, doing oh, it well. Okay. Right. Doing it well. Perhaps. Okay. But, uh, you know, uh, the – I mean, look, there's lots of people – well, you know, uh, okay, let's, let's leave that alone. I, I think that the, uh, I, I don't, you know, again, I, I just, I do not foresee a time anywhere in the, you know, near or even relatively, you know, medium distance future where all the skilled activities are done by machinery and what's left for people to do is sit around in a moat. <laughs> Uh, I Fair think, enough. I think there, I think there's a lot, you know, in medicine, there's a huge amount of, uh, skill in diagnosis and figuring out what someone's actual problem is. And it's more than just a chemical problem. It's the sort of set of complementary activities that allows that person to recover. I mean, actually my sister-in-law is a person who you know, goes and, and helps, uh, you know, elderly and infirm to sort of figure out a workable life. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and uh, that, and she's a, you know, she's a highly, highly trained nurse, but she's also a person who's a problem solver. Uh, so I, I think that uh, there's lots and lots of uh, – I, I think in general, uh, you know, people are complimented much more than they recognize by the things that make us more productive uh, you know, in a variety of ways. My, my sister-in-law is complimented by her uh, modern automobile that gets her reliably from one person's house to another, Absolutely. even though, of course, it means you know, she, there are, in theory, fewer number of people like her needed in the course of a day to reach a, a given number of people. Um, which is a good thing but, because it means it's cheaper and more people can afford it, and there's exactly. a very elastic demand for those services. Exactly. Now, the you know there we have obviously it's difficult. I, I think the challenge is always it's always a challenge for our imagination, and maybe because uh, you know we're we're being too optimistic, try to figure out what will those new activities look like. So I give the example in the paper. You know, at the turn of the 20th century, something like 38 percent of all U.S. employment was in agriculture. A hundred years later, 2% of all employment was in agriculture. I think if you had asked farmers at the turn of the 20th century, what do you think everyone will be doing a hundred years from now? And especially if you told them, and by the way, only 2% of people have been farming, they would have known. I mean, they knew at that time that farming was declining. In fact, that's why that was the genesis of the high school movement in the U.S., to send everyone to high school because they recognized the future was off the farm. But they wouldn't be able to say, oh, I think it'll be software, health services, yeah. business services, you know, entertainment, motels, uh, the movie industry, video games, right? That would have been impossible to predict. Uh, and similarly, we find ourselves at a point where we've gotten a lot faster, a lot better at automating a lot of things that we thought were not very readily automatable. I mean, just to give you one personal example, I remember, you know, some 25 years ago, I was working as a temp at uh, GTE uh, and in their library. And I was working as a kind of a librarian assistant, and a guy came up to me, and he started telling me about this thing he was doing on his computer, and he was going to have the computer search help you find articles that you needed. And, uh, and I said, well, how are you going to do that? He goes, well, it'll just read through the abstract. And I said, well, but it doesn't understand language. He goes, oh, no, it'll just, you know, it'll just recon- key- recognize key words. And I was like, oh, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, so I couldn't have been more wrong. But the point was, you know, we uh, – 
you know, we have gotten good at things that we thought were exclusively human, right? Uh, that we turned how to automate them. And so we're at a period where all of a sudden we see the frontier advancing very quickly what we can automate, but we don't know what is going to replace it. And we sort of feel like, oh, is this time different, right? Is this the, this the time in which all of a sudden we just run out of things for people to do? Yeah, so I think in general, my own view is no, we won't. On the other hand, it certainly is disruptive. And it's certainly for people who don't have some complementary skills, it's bad news, right? So if you took the, edu- the workforce of the turn of the 20th century and brought them to the 21st century, many of them would be unemployable because they would be innumerate and a, a substantial fraction would be illiterate as well. So you do have to have skills that are complemented by the sort of modern set of demands and many of those skills are a combination of kind of our onboard equipment, i.e. to allow you to be, you know, work as a house cleaner, plus a set of scarcer skills that, uh, that we want to combine uh, that uh, allow us to add more value. Well, to take a recent episode that, that we have a lot of knowledge of, um, when outsourcing, that is sending jobs overseas, sending tasks overseas, mm-hmm. started to grow dramatically, a lot of really smart people said – this is a this is different from the usual gains from trade, and it's mm-hmm. going to have enormous impacts on uh, U.S. well-being and workers' well-being. And there was, of course, as you point out, there were some workers who were had a negative impact from it. But people sure. grossly overestimated that trend. They extrapolated it way too quickly. They neglected the gains from keeping stuff close to home. That distance still matters, and they over. I think we. The punditry and lots of well-trained economists overreacted, and politicians listening to them overreacted to that to those fears. I think the issue here is 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 whether, as you say, is whether this this is is different. I think what makes your let, let's talk about this issue that you know your colleagues uh, Brin Olson and, and McAfee argue we should race yeah. with the machine. That is, we mm-hmm. as you've pointed out, I think very elegantly in lots of analysis in our conversation and in the paper, there are a lot of ways that technology helps us, makes us more productive, and creates new opportunities that we can't, as you say, imagine. Question is, right. other than that nice platitude, race with the machine, yeah. what, what does, which sounds nice, instead of racing against yeah, the machine sure like does. John Henry, what does it actually mean? And I, I think my suspicion is uh, there's no way to forecast that. And obviously, as you point out, those 19th century, turn of the 20th century workers wouldn't be very useful now. We do need a better school system, and we do need uh, ways for people to to be interacting with machines that, that only a small fraction right now can do. Uh, but having said that, I think there is grounds for optimism and just human creativity and coping with it. So I'm not as worried yeah. as the pessimist, but I, I do think uh, making our school system more flexible would help a lot. I agree. I, I don't mean to be Pollyannish here. In fact, I, I mean, I find myself in an ironic position in that I've been arguing, you know, for the last 15 years that computerization has had a very large effect on the labor market. And I've sort of been, out, you know, in some ways out in front of that argument. I'm now telling people not to panic yeah, exactly. <laughs> because I, I think, I think they're missing or, you know, under, I, they're, you know, I've convinced, or the world, they have been convinced computers are substituting for people. And they sort of looked, forgotten the second half of that, which is, but that means they're very likely complementing us in other ways. Um, but I absolutely, I think that the, the human skill that is most complemented, you know, at a fundamental level by automation is flexibility. And the thing that makes us flexible isn't simply just muscular flexibility; it's basically uh, problem-solving 
mental acuity, the ability to apply fluid intelligence to deal with unforeseen situations, whether they are in personal interactions or in scientific, you know, math proofs or scientific hypothesis formation or persuasion. And so the thing that we, you know, when people say to me, you know, should my kids be spending all their time studying Java? I'm like, no, <laughs> you know, I, I think they should learn. Uh, they should learn their very strong math foundations. They should also learn how to write yeah. Uh, to speak effectively uh, and to work in a team. And those skills are very broadly applicable. And, you know, one of the great advantages of educated people is that they're adaptable and they're able to reinvent themselves uh, because they have the foundational skills that allow them to do that. And so when, in a time of change, being adaptable is a valuable fundamental skill. Yeah, I used to argue that that's why you should go to college and get a general set of skills. Yeah. I now think college right. is overrated, but the parts of college that people ought to be focusing on are math, communication. It's not all STEM, yeah. but it be, but STEM yeah. helps, but then there's communication, there's, yeah. uh, as you say, problem solving, creativity. These are all things that can be improved through through thinking about them a little bit anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Well, at MIT, we're always telling people to learn how to write. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody can solve a differential equation, yeah, <laughs> but right, you can't exactly. write a paragraph telling you how they did it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, neither could Andrew Wiles. But um, let, let's. I want to close with an example that I thought was a really yeah. uh, interesting example, and I'll give you one more chance to, to finish up. But mm. talk about the company that you identify, which is Kiva, because it's an interesting little case study of how yeah. technology and humans interact and it's not to be confused with Kiva.org, which is a very interesting philanthropy right. opportunity that we've talked about on the program before. But this is a um, warehousing uh, inventory company. Talk about it. That's right. So, so Kiva is, a, is I think, is a beautiful uh, example, iconic example of this idea of environmental control. Uh, as being a, you know, how do we deal with machines that are inflexible? We make the environment predictable so it doesn't demand flexibility. So the basic problem is companies like Amazon, which now owns Kiva, although they did, it was actually an MIT-based startup, uh, uh, and many other large warehouse companies that do a lot of direct-to-consumer sales, they have these massive warehouses. Uh, the warehouse will be multi-million uh, square feet. They're, it's too expensive to air condition them, uh, and you have stuff, you know, all over the place in a, you know, a, a, a huge variety as a number of objects. And so, you know, traditionally, I say this sounds sort of funny to say traditionally when you're talking about Amazon, but historically, uh, Amazon employed so-called pickers, who are basically people who were kind of athletic young people who would run through the warehouses with little computers on their wrists that would tell them where to look for an object, and they would go, climb up over a shelf. They would grab, they would look at the object, make sure it was the one they wanted. They'd grab it, they'd bring it up to the front, and be boxed up. Those people, uh, you know, it's a difficult job. Uh, involves you know uh, running or walking 10 to 15 miles a day. It's hot and sweaty, and there's no robotic substitute for those people. There's no cost-effective machine that you could employ that would do that job. So what Kiva does, their idea is, well, let's reorganize the warehouse in such a way that we vastly reduce the need for a human touch. And in fact, uh, they Kiva talks about the idea of increasing the value of a human touch. The way this is done is the warehouse is run basically by the Kiva software. And uh, when goods come in the loading dock, uh, the software is told, here are the objects that are coming in. There are then people who take those objects off the pallets and they put them onto shelves, but they're not ordinary shelves. They're shelves that are driven by little robotic drives. In fact, the robots look like kind of those old Hoover canister vacuum cleaners. They drive along the floors, they go under a set of shelves, and then they raise themselves up a few inch and then drive the shelves with them. That's all they do. It's not a very complicated robotic 
feet. The shelves come and laser pointers uh, controlled by the scheduling software tell the people, point say, take this object, put it on this shelf. So now the computer knows where the objects are, not because it can see them or recognize them, but because it's told you where to put them. Then the robots whisk the shelves away into the warehouse, and they organize them, or I should say not the robots organize them, the, the, the controlling software you know, optimize the warehouse according to the flow of goods, right? So it's going to put things that are used frequently near the front, things that are used infrequently near the back, things that order, are ordered together, they're going to put them together. Then as orders come in, the robot drives again go, and let's say I, you know, I order, you know, from Amazon, you know, uh, a book, a box of diapers, and a video game. <laughs> uh, and the robots then go collect the shells that contain those objects, and they line up for another human picker. And that person stands there, and uh, the robot drive or the shells drive up to the picker. A laser pointer on the ceiling points to the object that the picker is supposed to pick. The picker takes it off the shelf, puts it in a box, takes these three objects together, uh, and sticks a label on it and sends it off. And then the ro robots whisk the shells back into the warehouse. So there are only two points in the system where people are uh, 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 involved in physically handling objects. That's when they're put on the shelf and when they're taken off the shelf. All the rest of the kind of transportation and organizing and sorting of objects is done by the robots. But be the reason they're able to do this because the need for all that dexterity, flexibility, visual recognition has all been uh, pared down to these two points of contact, the loading and the unloading. Everything else is transportation. And so uh, the, and if you talk to Keevan, you know, people say, well, well when are you going to you know, put hands, you know, these robotic hands that will do what the workers do at the beginning of the end? They say, well, that's not cost effective. Making you know, uh, sensory uh, robotic arms that can you know, deal with all these objects and all their uh, inconsistencies is really, really expensive. That's what people are for. Uh, what we do is we take almost all the rest of the routine activity and we mechanize that. Uh, and so you, what you see there is, one, this environmental control occurring, right, where the, you've, you've reshaped the environment to make it very consistent and predictable, and two, this sort of... Uh, uh, redivision of labor according to comparative advantage. The comparative advantage of the machinery is, you know, moving uh, heavy objects in a in a hot confined space. The comparative advantage of humans is recognizing objects and handling their inconsistencies uh, in a delicate way. And that is the division of labor that you see occurring in that warehouse. Yeah, it's very. Um, it's an extraordinary story. I I think you know, I read recently uh, talking about. Talking about something like uh, driverless cars delivering uh, items, and some some workers, uh, you know, combining with Uber, say, and some workers saying, "Well, they'll always you'll always need somebody to walk it up to the to the door." And I'm thinking, no, they won't. They'll they'll put a they'll put a box on the street, and they sure. the the arm of the drone will p push the or the driverless car will push the item into the into the box and it'll know what the shape of the of the item is so whether it'll fit in the box and which door to use and we're going to make progress on all those things so i guess to some extent sure. the optimism for the human enterprise and by the way i'm not worried about i maybe I should be uh, about the machines getting so smart that they'll run my that they'll take mm. over which is a whole nother I'm not worried about that yeah, either it's a whole nother no. issue but but this i i think the the complementarity the ultimate types of complementarity we haven't imagined yet. And and that'll be what it's like to live in a world where stuff is incredibly low cost and there's lots mm -hmm. of leisure. And therefore we're not going to use that leisure to surf the internet and, or, or go hiking all day or go into the national parks. We're going to use that leisure in ways we have, you and I haven't can't imagine 
just like those farmers back in 1900. At least that's that's my for my, my last my nat, my uh, where I'm at now. Why don't you close this I, out? I think, close this out and talk about your optimism or pessimism for the future and what policies you'd like to see to help us get to the more optimistic view. Sure. I mean, so on the leisure side, I mean, obviously it is the case we consume more leisure than we used to. Although, as Bob Gordon points out in his recent working papers, the the, the increase in leisure was much much more concentrated in the first half of the 20th century than the second half. Um, but I think we'll that's also be, but that's be, because we take leisure on the job. Is that's that's my theory? And, and <laughs> we know that we know that people spend less time working when they're at work. For in most exactly. occupations, not not the pickers. They there. That's another right. contrast. But go ahead. Right. Sorry. But but I think also it won't be just more leisure. It will also be we will be doing types of work that we didn't imagine. It just didn't exist, right? So you know we will be spending our time doing activities that you wouldn't have thought of as you know. So uh, you know whether those are making movies or you know writing software or these are all things, of course, that we do know about, but that we might not have anticipated them. Um, I think the uh, the you know case for optimism and it, uh, which I don't want to make too strongly is you know. The productivity ultimately benefits accrues to humans. The machines don't get rich when they become more productive. We do, right? So the problem it creates primarily is not one of lack of wealth. It's one of income distribution. And that's a challenge that we face so much of is because, because this is very disequalizing. It's not that there isn't wealth being created. It's that the wealth is not uh, – the the effectively diminishment in labor scarcity among some skill groups means that their claim on the wealth is very limited, right? So the the concern is well, not – shares that, might fall, but the question is whether their overall well-being is rising. There's still – there might be a cultural issue of gaps, but what we – what it's a different issue if you say they're going to be immiserated. They're going to be literally worse off, sure. right? If they have lower well, wages but, yep. but higher real – if they have, as long as their real wages rise, unless there is – you know that barber, sure. a barber today has a much bigger command over goods and services than a barber in 1850, even though the technology is almost exactly the same. Sure, absolutely. On the other hand, the last 30 years, if we look at wages of people with high school and lower education, uh, they've so arguably good. fallen yeah. in real terms. Yeah. Um, the uh, so, but the, so uh, I think the the challenges are uh, are significant. Um, because of the distributional consequences, not because of the prospects of uh, of you know lack of progress. In fact, the progress is exactly what we're worrying about at some level. And I also think the challenge is that you know our our system, you know, our capitalist system is is organized around labor scarcity. Your most valuable asset is your scarce labor. And if actually labor does become less scarce, at least for large groups of workers. Our people. How do we organize society in a way that uh, people still have, you know, purpose and uh, and uh, a structure uh, that gives meaning to uh, what they do? You want to talk about policies? Or do you uh, policies. Well, I mean, I you know, so as you and I have discussed at length during this conversation, things that improve. Uh, the quality of primary and secondary education and the efficiency of post-secondary education, college education, I think are really, really good, uh, as are things that improve the conduits into the skilled vocations. Uh, the other thing I, I think is actually extremely important is policies that make work more attractive for less educated workers. We see huge declines in labor force participation among demographic groups that have falling real wage levels. I think programs like the EITC are a wonderful thing, and I think they ought to be expanded to include males without dependent children. You're so right about now, the you know, earned income tax credit. 
That's correct. And right now you can get you know up to about approximately $5,000 if you're a woman with dependent children. But uh, our biggest employment in wage in annual wage subsidy, uh, our biggest employment problems are actually among kind of young and middle-aged men who are not married. And although they may have children, those children may not be dependents in the standard sense and that they can't claim them on their tax forms. They can only get about $400 a year. So, you know, the EI, the earned income tax credit is a policy that has been effective uh, in increasing employment, uh, increase, increasing participation, and uh, I think it's a good investment and it ought to be uh, made more broadly accessible. So that's a policy I would uh, strongly advocate. But ultimately, a lot of this is going to come from our culture changing about how we see what university life is and what we see high school life is. And I think that's going to be the most interesting thing to watch that no one controls, it'll emerge in ways that we can't expect. Uh, we're always surprised. <laughs> and th- th- if we're, you know, if we're, as economists, we don't really believe in central planning, so we should hope that the, uh, the innovation will be something uh, we didn't uh, try to, to uh, we didn't anticipate and couldn't have dictated. My guest today has been David Otter of MIT. His paper is Polanyi's Paradox in the Shape of Employment Growth. David, thanks for being part of EconTalk. My pleasure. Enjoyed the discussion very much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>